Everybody and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am doing pretty good. Um, I'm not an outdoors kind of person. I'm not a gardening kind of person, and I never really have been. Mm. But since last year, when our downstairs neighbor moved out, who had the green thumb in the household, I guess, Ben and I have been taking over doing the gardening. We're always doing like yard work, like mowing the lawn, but now we actually have to take care of the flower beds. And I don't like it. (laughs) Oh, okay. I had fun doing the yard work, primarily just because all we've really or at least all I did when I was working on it was just like pulling up all the dead stuff that we hadn't taken care of because basically our downstairs neighbor moved out and we just kind of like, she moved out right as fall was happening. Yes. And so we just kind of let fall happen and then winter happen without really like addressing any of her plants and just letting them get like old and dead and dried out and bent over and whatever, including like a big like sunflower and like, bunch of other stuff that just now was kind of lying dead there in the spring once the snow thawed and revealed all of it so so far it's mostly just been pulling up dead things and like that's fine but this morning i went into the front flower bed and weeded taking out all the weeds and grass and leaving the i think tulips i don't know what's popping up but i can Mm. recognize that that's going to be a flower eventually yeah i think there's some tulips and a rose bush yeah there's um two rose bushes in Mm. there but i like it was fine it was fine i just don't like my body after like i just am so sore and my knees hurt and my back hurts and my wrists hurt. And I just don't like any of it. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say like we aren't in good physical shape, but you actually like exercise semi-regularly. Semi-regularly. Yeah. yeah. But that's that's how I'm doing. I'm sore. <laughs> how are you? I'm doing all right. Just been kind of like struggling with like working but feeling and being really lazy and then feeling really like guilty about being uh, lazy and the then awful like spiral that happens from that. Yeah. And then like feeling bad that I feel bad about myself because like, what do I even have to complain about? Like just, yeah, just total that sort of nonsense. Um, I'm sorry. That's okay. It's, well, it's fine. Today's today's been better than like yesterday. The last couple days have been kind of rough for it, but it's fine. Well, I have some news that might cheer you up. Okay. We have a new patron. Oh, dope. So thank you to James V, uh, who I will also think of as James V. Right. James V of Scotland, (laughs) the father of Mary, Queen of Scots. (laughs) He's risen from the dead to join our Patreon. Thank you. Your, your highness, your majesty. He's a king. Your majesty. 
wouldn't that still be highness no um oh is there like oh, okay there's like different forms of address for different ranks so like your majesty is a king your highness would refer to like a prince well anyways thank you james and if you want to be like our lord james you can go to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast and sign up for as little as a dollar a month you can get access to bonus audio and written content and lots of cool stuff thanks james what are we watching today, Ben? Well, we teased it last week. Uh, today we are watching Not of This Earth mm. from 1957, directed by Roger Corman. And this was the second half of last week's movie, Double Feature. That's right. So, you know, Corman's been releasing his movies as double features for a while now um, with his distributor, uh, AIP, once AIP figured out that they could make like just infinitely more money doing these double features instead of just making B movies. Mm -hmm. What's sort of unique about this double feature is I think this is the first time Corman directs both halves Mm. of the double feature previously, you know, like, um, he's handed off director duties to someone else because it's a lot of work. Yeah. To make two of these movies kind of simultaneously right in a week yeah so like <laughs> i think it was day the world ended was the corman picture that was paired with the non-corman picture phantom from Ten Thousand leagues mm-hmm. etc this film came about after screenwriter charles b griffith and roger corman collaborated on corman's female-led western gunslinger starring beverly garland having earlier assisted with the writing of it conquered the world griffith wanted to work with corman on another science fiction picture kind of like from the ground up makes sense griffith came up with the central gimmick of a man with x-ray eyes that could zap you Um, (laughs) making this the first sci-fi movie to use the x-ray eyes concept great which you'll note implies that it became a thing that it won't be the last. Right. Which is like, it's weird sometimes what becomes trends, but x-ray eyes. Yeah. Uh, Charles B. Griffith's wife was a nurse, so she assisted with researching the like medical terminology that is oh. used in this film's plot, uh, which concerns things like blood transfusions and cancer and all kinds of stuff. That's uh, cool. Griffith's writing partner from Gunslinger, Mark Hanna, also assisted with writing this screenplay as well. Generally speaking, Hanna, he worked with Griffith and they co-wrote a bunch of screenplays together. But Griffith would describe their writing relationship mostly as like Hanna being like the face of the partnership, like the guy who would like go out and sell the scripts to people. Now, the writing of not of this earth led griffith and corman to develop attack of the crab monsters which we watched last week to serve as the a picture to this double feature Mm -hmm. um and what we talked about in that episode how attack of the crab monsters got them in the door mm. and then not of this earth was like the more critical success yes um but it's much less of a like for example not of this earth doesn't have like a big monster that you could put on the poster oh combo breaker Um, for corman yeah it's got some little monsters um but it doesn't have like a big monster (laughs) and so i think that's like a big part of why like attack of the crab monsters was the lead feature that makes sense now 
From the success of It Conquered the World, Walter Mirsch invited Corman over to Allied Artists to create the horror film The Undead. Um, Corman agreed to do so for Mirsch if Allied Artists would distribute the Attack of the Crab Monsters, Not of This Earth double feature, which is why these two movies came out from Allied Artists and not Corman's regular distributor, AIP. Now, ironically, Mirsch would actually pull out of backing the undead, leaving Corman to fund that movie himself and then distribute it through AIP. Mm. You win some, you lose some. Uh, Working relationships, that is. I presume he won the box office (laughs) because that has been his trend. Paul Blaisdell worked on creating the props, creatures, and effects for this film, which had a budget of $100,000, which was higher than the Attack of the Crab Monsters budget, which he refused to work on. Yeah, it was too cheap even for Blaisdell. Right. Um, Blaisdell at this time was becoming increasingly frustrated with the limitations placed on him by Corman, both in time and money. As a producer, Corman was paid a flat rate for a picture, and the costs of making a movie, you know, go up the longer it takes, right? Because actors and crew people are paid by the day, and equipment is rented by the day. So Blaisdell felt that Corman the producer often won out over Corman the director, So while he felt that Corman had talent, um, Blaisdell believed that Corman rushed potentially good movies through production unnecessarily in order to keep costs low. And Blaisdell felt that if Corman would be willing to, you know, spend a more reasonable amount of time and money on his pictures, then Blaisdell could in turn produce better results than kind of the imaginative but flawed creatures that he'd been making up to this point. Um, So in essence, he felt that Corman's producing style was sort of holding him back and making Blaisdell look bad. Sure, I can kind of understand where he's coming from. Nonetheless, uh, he continued to work with him on this picture. Now, as we mentioned, this was shooting at the same time as Attack of the Crab Monsters. Uh, Specifically, this shot while Attack of the Crab Monsters was shooting its second unit underwater photography at Marineland, which Charles B. Griffith had offered to do for $100. Now, Corman's regular cinematographer, the talented but past his prime Floyd Crosby, was shooting Attack of the Crab Monsters. So, for this film, uh, Corman hired another talented but past his prime cinematographer, John J. Meskel. Now, Meskel was once well-known in Hollywood for his elaborate and sometimes unnecessarily showy camera work. Um, He would love to do, like, big sweeping crane shots and and other kinds of, like, elaborate camera moves. Didn't, was, there was someone we watched who was known as, like, one-shot person, William Bodine. Bodine. Okay, so not this dude. Okay. Um, But Meskel had fallen out of favor uh, since the 1940s, um, increasingly doing like small B movies instead of the big A pictures that he was known for uh, due to his frequent clashes with studio executives over his 
style, which was expensive. Now, he had a career stretching back to the 1920s, and some notable feature films he shot include Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, Showboat in 1936, <laughs> Showboat, The Road Back in 1937, Youth Runs Wild oh, in 1944. Um, he also did some work uncredited on The Black Cat and The Invisible Man. The Black Cat being the 34 The Black Cat? Because there's also a 40s one. Yeah, I think he worked on the 34 Black Cat. So with Lugosi and Karloff. Yeah, cool. and, and you know, with um, Invisible Man. The thing that you can see here is that he had a long partnership with james whale in the 30s uh and then they kind of both fell out of favor um shortly after showboat he would only shoot one more project after this a tv movie uh before passing away in 1962 at the age of 63 so fairly good run definitely a long career yeah yeah to portray the man with the x-ray eyes corman cast veteran character actor paul birch who had previously appeared in the Roger Corman films Five Guns West, Beast with a Million Eyes, Apache Woman, and Day the World Ended. Is he the dad? Yes. Okay. Yeah, he's the, the dad. The dad in a million eyes. Okay. Yeah, and Day the World Ended, yeah. So for this role, uh, Birch had to wear silver contact lenses, um, which covered his entire eye. Uh, not just the cornea. Um, gross. Eye stuff is gross. These were plastic um, and very, very painful to wear after a few hours. Um, Yeah, because you're not supposed to put things over your entire eye. Yeah, contact lenses at this time were um, what's now called hard contact lenses as opposed to modern contact lenses, which are called soft contact lenses. Yeah. So you could like feel these on your eye all day. Oh, yeah. Um imagine having to work with that yeah and you're shooting long hours i'm presuming at the very least because they want to keep the shoot days as low as possible exactly oh god um so you have a very fast style of shooting which means not a lot of breaks so birch grew really frustrated with the fast pace of the shooting the low budget and the painful contact lenses Uh, And one day he kind of just snapped and took off the lenses and got in a physical fight with Roger Corman on the front lawn of the house they were shooting at. Uh, So Corman took off his glasses and the two just sort of like pushed and shoved each other uh, until Birch declared, I'm an actor. I don't need this to hell with it and stormed off the set never to return. Oh, no. (laughs) Now, most of Birch's scenes were in the can. So Corman used stuntman Lyle Littell, uh, best known as sidekick Pat Patton in the 1940s Dick Tracy movies, as a double to finish Birch's scenes. Oh, did he did he did Birch at least still get paid? Uh, Yeah. Okay. he's the one who's credited. Uh, Yeah. No, but like, you know, I, I don't know how mean people are behind the scenes. Sure, sure. Beverly Garland said that she believed Roger Corman could get around any difficulty in shooting. Like any mishap, he would just like find a way to keep going and finish the picture. This was Garland's fifth and final collaboration with Corman. 
uh, for whom she usually played women much tougher than the roles she got to play in other projects. Mm -hmm. Two other Corman alums in the cast are Jonathan Hayes and Dick Miller, his kind of like go-to supporting actor, comic relief sort of guys. Um, They were notably missing from Attack of the Crab Monsters because they're over here in this movie. Um, Miller in particular had fun on this one, ad-libbing most of his dialogue as a vacuum cleaner salesman. (laughs) So as the bottom half of the double bill with Attack of the Crab Monsters, Not of This Earth was released on February 10th, 1957, grossing $1 million. Wow. It was the most critically well-received of any of Corman's films thus far. Uh, praised for its intelligence, imagination, humor, and fun. In 1962, when it was released on TV, it was lengthened from 67 minutes to 71 minutes so it could better fit in a 90-minute time slot. This was done by having several scenes played twice through the movie rather haphazardly. So, for example, (laughs) a scene from the middle of the movie was put at the start of the movie as a flash forward, um, and certain other scenes were just sort of used more than once, like scenes of, like, the villains chasing the heroes or the heroes chasing the villains or whatever, like, just happen more than once. Um, We're not watching that version, right? No, no. Um, However... The TV version is public domain and thus very common. So if you are going to watch along, watch out for 71-minute versions and stay away from them. We're looking for 67 minutes. That's right. No more, no less. (laughs) Not of This Earth uh, was also remade twice. Oh. uh, Once as a theatrical film in 1988, uh, although that version was more successful on home video. And then again in 1995 as a TV movie. The 1988 version stars former porn actress Tracy Lords in the Beverly Garland role. And the 1995 version stars Michael York in the Paul Birch role. So how are we watching this? Not of This Earth is available on DVD from Shout Factory in the Roger Corman's Cult Classics series. Uh, specifically... The Roger Corman's cult classics triple feature sci-fi classics set uh, alongside Attack of the Crab Monsters and War of the Satellites. War of the Satellites? Right. The moon comes down? Yeah, I mean, like, you know. Sputnik strikes again. I mean, it, it's <laughs> it's just as valid a title as Star Wars. <laughs> War of the Satellites is the odd one out in the quote-unquote triple feature because the movie it was paired with in theaters wasn't a Corman movie. Mm. Uh, You can also find Not of This Earth on our YouTube playlist. Awesome. Folks, if you would like to watch along, you can find that YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Not of This Earth, from 1957, directed by Roger Corman. See you on the other side. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching Not of This Earth from 1957, directed by Roger Corman. Ben, what did you think of this one? I really liked this. Oh, good. It uh, was a little dull for me. Huh. That's weird. Like, it had its moments, but I, I guess I was kind of wanting a little bit more. That's so weird. Because, like, in my impression of this movie, we got a lot for, like, a movie of this type and from this time compared to, like, what these kinds of movies have normally been like. I was really impressed. I thought it was quite, like, eventful and packed with stuff. (laughs) With death? Yes. Yes. Yeah, it was all right. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting. Well, why don't we talk about the plot and we can let the listener decide. That sounds great. So the rotten teens are at it again with the making out and the rock and roll music and the slang. (laughs) We start with this teen girl leaving the car. She's just gone on a date with her boyfriend and they're macking out and she's like, no, Billy, I have to go home. And he's like, yeah, your old man's lame. And she's like, I know, but we'll go surfing next week. Don't worry. Yeah, except that, like, replace <laughs> every word of everything you just said with 50 slang. Exactly. They talk exclusively in slang words. And it's wonderful. It's, it's the teens. Um, anyway, so the girl leaves the car. She's heading home and, um, she hears like someone as if they're following her and, you know, she's in her yard and she comes across this man wearing sunglasses and carrying this silver briefcase. And she's like, oh, and he's like, hello. And then goes, whatcha with his sunglasses and his silver eyes melt her brain Mm -hmm. she screams and dies and falls onto the pavement where he then connects some tubes to her throat and takes her blood opening sequence time yeah that's like we got a pre-titles sequence yeah so we get the the credits now by the way roger corman movies have great opening credits art like consistently like who is doing this art yeah it feels like whoever does it eventually goes on to do like opening titles for like James Bond movies like that that imaginative sure I mean I can tell you for a fact that they don't because I know who did the titles for the James Bond movies okay but But, like I'm just saying (laughs) they're like always like very um surrealist they feel like if Roger Corman movies were pulp sci-fi novels of the time they would be what the cover art of that pulp sci-fi novel would be. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. So next we see a Mr. Johnson going to the hospital where he wants to get some blood work done. Um, Now, Mr. Johnson seems to be a little weird. Uh, He's wearing the same kind of um, sunglasses and suit and hat as the man in the opening. That's because he is the man in the opening. And 
he parks on the wrong side of the road in like a no parking zone in like the red zone like the people on like the pa in the movie airplane would be having a field day with this dude right um but he goes into this hospital where he meets the nurse nadine and dr rochelle and like i said he wants to get a transfusion and they're like well we need to test your blood first we know what to give you and he's like no no tests only blood (laughs) and they're like no like this is what we have to do. No doctor on earth is going to give you a, a blood transfusion without testing your blood first. And so alone with Dr. Rochelle, Mr. Johnson uses telepathy to Dr. Rochelle, uh, basically instructing him that he will not be able to speak about any of these blood test results or anything about his health to anyone. So they do you know, the blood test, the blood transfusion. Um, And Mr. Johnson gives Nadine an offer to basically be his home-based nurse. And she's like, well, I I don't know about that. And he's like, I'll pay you $200. And that's like... $200 a week. Yeah, $200 a week. That's like over double what Nadine would get paid normally. She's like, "Mm, this seems fishy. Um, But Dr. Rochelle essentially orders her to do this um, because this is a patient who needs at-home care. So she's like, yeah, you're ordering me to do it, so I will do it then. He's also, like, Dr. Rochelle's being mind-controlled, so, like... Yeah, but she doesn't know that. No, she doesn't, but that's part of it, for sure. Now, when Nadine takes Mr. Johnson back to his car, there's a beat cop named Harry there. Harry and Nadine happen to be dating. Um, So she kind of says, like... Listen, Harry, Mr. Johnson's really sick. Don't give him a ticket. Like, let him go on his way. But it introduces Nadine's beau being a policeman. Once Mr. Johnson gets back home, we meet his butler, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, named Jeremy, who um, turns out is a uh, ex-con. Um, Harry knows him. Uh, he spends his summer with us, kind of joke. And he's also like... A little gross towards Nadine, as um, I guess a criminal might be uh, in these types of movies. Um, but <laughs> a man might be <laughs> in this decade. But Nadine, um, like, holds her own. Yeah. Um, and like is like having a laugh about it, which is nice. It's not just like, oh, he's being gross. It's like, no, she's holding her own. Turns out Jeremy's being paid three hundred dollars a week. Even more than Nadine. Yeah, his job is to, you know, be a chauffeur, um, make food, um, keep people out of the cellar, you know, normal butler things. Right. Do anything <laughs> Mr. Johnson tells him. Um, and he says, he has a line that's like, I kind of consider the pay to also to not ask questions. Yeah, exactly. So we see through the movie that when Mr. Johnson uses his eyes and gets blood uh into vials into his suitcase he then will take them and put them into like big cases um and into the refrigerator or ice box or whatever it is this decade um and then will destroy the body by putting the body into the incinerator mm-hmm. into the furnace mm-hmm. so we see this happen um with the teen in the opening and then also with the vacuum cleaner salesman <laughs> who comes to the door which was 
choice, by the way. Like, super amazing slang usage throughout the whole thing. Crazy, man. <laughs> and we learn that Mr. Johnson is an alien from a planet named Devana. Um, now, they plan to basically test human blood to solve their own health crisis, their own kind of like pandemic, mm -hmm. you could say. Their blood is basically evaporating. Turning to dust in their veins. But they're testing whether human blood will suffice as like either a cure, if not a band-aid solution situation. Yeah. Mr. Johnson is here to be injected with human blood as basically a live test subject, um, as well as send blood back to Devana through this closet transporter situation for like further usage and testing back on Devana, eventually send a live human subject through the beam. And if the blood works and Johnson lives, uh, then the Devanians uh, will... I think it's just the Devana. The Devana will then colonize and subjugate the human race and put us out to pasture, as it were, to uh, use us as um, blood bags. There's like an interesting bit of world building that gets done with the Devana here that implies that like they've already done this yeah. to many, many other worlds, that there's like an intergalactic empire of space vampires who have like all these like subject worlds that are serving as blood bags. Yeah. For them. And that like things have gotten really dire on Devana with like how bad the health crisis has gotten but also things have gotten really bad because these like subjugated planets are like rising up in rebellion and like attacking the Devana. And so like things are dire and we need to like fix this shit mm -hmm. right now. Well, see what I understood as Devana's um, political situation is that there were different factions fighting for more blood mm. not necessarily the colonized worlds rising up but rather different factions killing others for their blood whether it's for the pastures full of blood packs or for the Devonans' blood themselves mm. yeah we might both be right a lot of the dialogue between johnson and other Devana is couched in that kind of like old time hokey sci-fi dialogue style for aliens where everything's like in three earth solar days i will approach planet Nikron seven and you shall wait for me 16 die cubits away and like stuff like that where it's like you kind of have to squint your ears a bit to <laughs> understand what's being said yeah now Two things there. One, just to wrap up with this plan. Yes. There is a backup plan in the sense of if Johnson dies because these tests fail, then they're just going to destroy Earth. Which feels like a little petty. That's like, like taking... Well, it's, it's like when you're looking for a needle in a haystack. You're like, well, the needle's not in this haystack, so burn it. Right. Except that, like, to me, it's like finding out that, like, you're allergic to apricots, so destroy all the apricot trees. Like, it's very, it's a little <laughs> petty. Uh, and then the second thing I want to follow up there is, 
about squinting your ears. Okay. Um, and I bring that up because we also see that Mr. Johnson is quite sensitive to sound, specifically yes. high-pitched sounds. So whenever Jeremy honks the horn because someone cuts him off, whenever there's a voice over the PA system or the phone rings or someone screams. Yeah. Uh, he gets defeated. <laughs> um, there is like an, a lot of like neat little details of his alien nature kind of built throughout the movie and like things that he says and behaviors that he has. One really early line that like only really took on significance for me once we had seen the rest of the movie and figured out more about what was going on with his people was like when Nadine goes to stay at his house for the first night because she's going to be his living nurse, he locks her in. And I think in the context of this being, you know, a horror sci-fi movie, you kind of just get the feeling that that's like your standard, like, you know, you're in Castle Dracula and he just locked you in your room so that you don't go snooping around at night and see things you aren't supposed to see. But when she objects to it, um, he goes, oh, you know, I'm sorry, but where I'm from, no one would ever sleep in unsecured quarters. And then later when we learn that like there's uprisings going on in their empire and like factions fighting and stuff, it gives that line like, a bit more um, depth, mm-hmm. I guess. It makes it make sense and not just sound like a weird justification. Yeah, a weird you're my prisoner mm. thing. So we see Mr. Johnson kill a few people. Um, like I said, the teen girl in the beginning, the vacuum cleaner salesman. And then uh, he also picks up three homeless people uh, to finish collecting samples. Um he puts these samples together into a big suitcase and sends that through the beam. Then for his live specimen, uh, he decides to pick up an Asian American man and um, telepathies him into being mind controlled and sends him through. And one thing that's kind of neat is um, he speaks the Asian man's uh, language. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's Chinese based on like the language that we hear. Yeah, I don't know if it's Mandarin or Cantonese. Um, but in any case, it's it to me, I thought it was interesting that they went to that effort. It's not just yeah. English. Yeah, and it's it sort of like shows you Johnson's power mm-hmm. but also kind of explains like how he knows english and stuff because it's like oh he's telepathic so he's like reading your mind figuring out like what language you speak and then parroting it back to you and like it makes a lot of sense that he would communicate telepathically with this man in his own like in the language that he thinks in i guess yeah anyways that guy gets sent through the beam yeah uh, meanwhile, Nadine and Jeremy are growing a little bit more suspicious about Mr. Johnson. Not quite yet to the level of like, I think he's an alien, mm. but more like, yeah, he seems to be weird and he's not eating. And Nadine notices that um, out of breakfast, the only thing that Mr. Johnson touched was his water and he mixed in some kind of weird, dark thing into this liquid. Um, and she's like, well, I'm his nurse. I should figure out what he's ingesting. Um, it turns out that this liquid contains every vitamin known to man and then some. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like the perfect, like, meal replacement water Yeah. Um, that you could ever want. It does smell vile, apparently. But... Apparently. 
I mean, it's healthy. What do you expect, Ben? <laughs> and then a woman arrives to Johnson. He sees her in the street and she's wearing the dark sunglasses just like he is. And she's walking and behaving in the same kind of not quite human way that Mr. Johnson is. And so they connect and they speak telepathically to each other. And it's made clear that Devana has gotten worse and she escaped um, by coming through the transporter, the beam. transporter beam that brought Mr. Johnson here. Um, and she's like, yeah, everything's gotten worse. Um, we, we really need the blood. Um, there's been like civil wars or whatever. The dude who collected your samples and your live specimen is dead. And also your live specimen died in the transport thing on the way over. So we're, we're probably just going to die on Earth. Yeah, they think that maybe you can't go back through the beam. Mm-hmm. That you can come here, but you can't come back. Uh, which is is worrying to to Mr. Johnson. But first, you know, Chick needs some blood um, because she's going to die otherwise. So uh, Mr. Johnson takes her and breaks her into the hospital where Dr. Vishal works and goes to give her a blood transfusion. Now, unbeknownst to Mr. Johnson... But knownst to us. <laughs> um, the bottle of blood, because everything's kept in glass bottles... Uh, we don't have, like, plastic packs of blood yet. Yeah. Um, which is just neat, you know, seeing where medical science is at this point. I, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, get into plastics. Um, <laughs> That's your invest- hot investment tip for 1957. <laughs> Mr. Johnson uses canine blood that has been infected with rabies. Oops. So he gives that to her. She dies. <laughs> she survives a little bit. Um, enough for Johnson to be like, hey, I'll meet up with you later and leaves. And then she goes, oh, I'm feeling sick. Uh, and then she collapses on like the footsteps of the hospital. Um, so she is discovered. Now, Dr. Rochelle um, calls up Nadine and he's like, yeah, this. Oh, and Harry is there as well um, because he helps bring her into the hospital. And so they call up Nadine and Harry's like, yeah, this chick didn't have any eyes. She had like just like, well, she had eyes, but she didn't have pupils and all that jazz. And like she was wearing the same glasses as Mr. Johnson. So I don't think you're safe, Nadine. And Nadine's like, uh, Harry, I think I think you need to chill out. Dr. Michelle comes on the line and he's like, yeah, Nadine, this is kind of what's up with this chick. Blood evaporating, died of rabies, you know, all these things. And she's like, oh, well, what what do you think about that with like Mr. Johnson's case? And he's like, I can't talk about Mr. Johnson. But this chick, though, here's all the details. This is a really clever screenwriting thing, because Mm -hmm. like on the face of it, this chick showing up and then immediately dying feels like a kind of like weird out of nowhere diversion that doesn't really do anything, but it lets the movie get Rochelle out of his like silence clause um, in a really clever way so that he can still deliver all the like medical techno babble exposition to the heroes so that they know what's going on without breaking the telepathic command from Johnson, which therefore means that like Johnson doesn't look stupid in trusting 
Dr. Rochelle with his information, mm-hmm. right? So it's like they don't undermine the intelligence of their villain, but they still get all of their exposition out by having this like other alien who shows up. Yeah. So Nadine gets all the goods and she's like, okay, well, Mr. Johnson is an alien, I guess. But at this point, she and Jeremy happened upon the transporter pad, (laughs) basically, and the communicator. Yeah. To use Star Trek terms, I guess. Um, And so they're like, yeah, this is all fucked up. Now, unfortunately, Mr. Johnson was listening on the other line, on the extension, which is what an an extension extension is is for. Um, (laughs) And so after Dr. Vichelle hangs up, uh, Mr. Johnson goes, "Uh, I know you know things, Nadine. What's your favorite horror movie, Nadine? (laughs) Um, So he he goes to, like, go upstairs and attack her. Um, Jeremy has been in the cellar uh, trying to dig around and find out what's up. And he has discovered the bodies in the incinerator. Yeah. Like a full human skull. And he comes upstairs just as Mr. Johnson is going to go get Nadine. And Jeremy throws the skull at him (laughs) just as Johnson whips off his glasses and x-rays him. Uh, Now, Jeremy does try to shoot him, um, but, you know, gets like bombarded with the x-rays, whatever. And so he misses. And that kind of warns Nadine that Mr. Johnson's coming upstairs. Nadine got to see that Johnson kills with his eyes and that it only works if you look at his eyes. So she's like covering her eyes. It's like a bird box situation. Um, (laughs) And Johnson's getting closer and she screams. And now remember, high pitched sounds kill Johnson, not actually kill, but like causes him to like experience a lot of pain. So that enables Nadine to get the fuck out of there and start a little bit of a chase scene. Now, it might be at this point, I'm a little fuzzy on order of operations. But Mr. Johnson also decides to release an umbrella creature to go kill Dr. Rochelle. Yeah, it looks like maybe a lampshade if like a lampshade was made out of like a bat wing Mm -hmm. with like claws at like the little like umbrella pole points. And then it has like it, it looks like a little like creature on thing on top like a little creature wearing a big skirt yeah like a poofy skirt right and it just sort of you know seems to float on the air with... like a jellyfish yeah i was gonna say like one of those um you know those types of like flowers that like where they open up and catch the wind and that's how the seeds go along oh you're thinking of fantasia yeah <laughs> yeah that kind of thing <laughs> Sure, yeah. So he releases this thing to go kill Dr. Rochelle because he knows too much and then goes and chases Nadine. Yeah. It, like, crushes Dr. Rochelle's head because it, like, wraps around his head and he, like, dies and falls over and then we see just, like, blood come, like, trickling out from Mm -hmm. under. It's pretty good. Yeah. So Dr. Rochelle is dead. Mm. Nadine is on the run and she manages to get to a payphone. Um, Don't have those anymore, so... What's that? (laughs) Google it, kids. (laughs) And she's able to call Harry at the police station to be like, fuck. (laughs) So he's coming with um, 
a second buddy a partner simmons or something like that yeah his name is simmons um and they're on their bikes going and they're like hey no sirens because we need to sneak up on him and it's the like, fools the fools the sirens would help you eventually johnson does catch up with nadine and uses his telepathy in order to tell her you know go back to the house and send yourself through the beam because i need to send a live specimen back to Devana. she's like okay simmons gets got uh he basically gets like x-rayed and then drives into a tree yeah he gets like drive-by x-rayed yeah. <laughs> while he's on his bike to draw harry away johnson gets back into his car and drives the opposite direction. Uh, so Harry's after him. Um, and we get a suspense-driven cross-cutting of um, Harry after Johnson and Johnson trying to, like, look at him while driving. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, sorry, eyes. And Nadine walking and going into the beam and about to push the button. Yeah, um, because Harry is behind Johnson chasing Johnson, Johnson has to, like, turn and, like, look kind of like out the window behind him at like at his blind spot and he's like (laughs) telepathically like look at my eyes bro like yeah so he gets into a car accident (laughs) and dies just burns up yeah because of course the car explodes after it rolls off the hill that it was driving on because it's california yeah and this happens just as nadine was about to hit the go button or like beam me up scotty it it also ends the telepathic link and so she's like freaking out it's actually kind of a, a pretty good moment for mm-hmm. her cut to standing over the grave of an unnamed man who is not from this earth yeah i cannot believe that's what they put <laughs> on, on, his the, gravestone. On, on the gravestone like that they a buried the alien rather than like doctors or scientists or the government being interested in like dissecting this guy at all and then like once they had him buried like they were able to get like the mortician or whoever (laughs) to actually put like here lies a man not of this earth on the like stone (laughs) without like asking a lot of weird questions um and harry and nadine are standing over it and they're like oh man this this foreign agent came into our lives and tried to destroy us, but we overcame it. And then, like, if you look in the back, in the background, there's a uh, man in a black suit and a black hat and black sunglasses and a silver suitcase kind of walking towards the camera. And then as Harry and Nadine leave, the man walks all the way up to the camera and it turns out it's another Devonan. Dun, dun, dun. The end. The end. They look kind of like they're just um, like men in black. Yeah, if that helps. They're blues brothers with like Avengers heart transfusion with Avengers. Yeah, with Nick Fury's suitcase. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Nick Fury's suitcase. Turns out the entire thing was just a elaborate distracted driving PSA. <laughs> and uh, no making out in cars. Yeah, those damn teens, Ben. <laughs> So we already touched on this, but the the opening credits are really great, Um, really good at setting the mood, really cool, like, flashes of, like, skulls and crumpled hands and glowing eyes. And And blood. And blood. Yeah. Yeah, this movie has blood. It has death. It has grisly details. um, It has gratuitous 
um, sex appeal where like, <laughs> Oh yeah. I didn't mention that Nadine goes swimming. And then also at one point, cause she sleeps at the house mm-hmm. is putting on her stockings in a, um, barely closed house coat yeah. as Jeremy walks in with breakfast. Yeah. I think it's the most boob we've seen in a movie in like 30 years. Yeah. Definitely since, um, sex maniac. Sure. I was thinking of the dancing girl in the 1920 version of Jekyll and Hyde. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, we got a lot of cleavage on display here. We got some legs. Uh, we got, Beverly Garland in a shapely swimsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's all, all of it, the violence, the sex, everything, it all comes together to really like be signaling to you like, Hey, it's 1957. <laughs> I really noticed, especially with the opening credits, how the music was much more subdued mm. than attack of the crab monsters. Well, especially compared to attack of the crab monsters, But it's actually a bit more subdued than I expected Mm. because Corman has done, you know, a bit more bombastic stuff in the past. Right. We don't associate Corman with subtlety. Exactly. And it's not like we we get subtlety here. (laughs) Like we we got boobs and we got blood. Yeah. Um, But honestly, this is a bit more of a uh, subtle isn't the word somber. Cerebral. Yeah. Like it just feels like a more well thought out and like more considered story. Like that there was like more of an attempt to like come up with like a good story that would make sense and like have interesting sci-fi concepts and Mm -hmm. like, you know, be a little bit more, um, a little bit more like slow burn Mm -hmm. in its horror than like, slow burn. Yeah. That's, I think that's, that's what I was looking for instead of subdued. Yeah. I also really like that either way, Earth loses. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Johnson lives, uh, we're fucked. If he dies, we're fucked. Yes. Choose your poison a little bit. Yeah. And even by the end, like, oh, the Devonans are still here. Like, we're still probably fucked. Yeah. Because we kind of did cure him a bit with our blood. Yeah. So, like, by the end, too, Rochelle by examining the dead Devon and woman, he's discovered that the reason why they have this horrible blood disease is due to radioactivity. Our old 1950s friend, because it turns out the Devon are like in like either a constant state of current nuclear war or that they went through a big nuclear war in the past enough that like their genes have been altered by years and years of like continual radiation exposure. And that's why they have this, blood disease and so knowing that um dr rochelle believes that the cure is getting them away from the radioactive environment and doing like a complete a hundred percent one-to-one blood transfusion Mm -hmm. and so you know once mr johnson quote unquote uh gets this information that's when he kills dr rochelle and it makes a ton of sense that there's like more of these guys coming at the end because the Devon are like a big intergalactic empire of space Draculas. Yeah. So why would they stop when we've defeated one agent? I mean, so here's the thing. Sure, a dude, a Devonan shows up at the end, but 
we're kind of saved at the end of the day because Devana happens to go to shit, not because of anything Earth folk did. Like, Johnson blows up in his car. Okay. And the experiment he was doing kind of goes to shit because Devana has gone to shit on his end with the civil wars and all of that. And so it's like kind of neat to have the Devonan show up at the end, but it doesn't really signal how fucked we are or not. Because sure. like, I guess what I'm getting at is like, what does colonization look like when it's being done by a crumbling civilization Right. Rather than a civilization that's growing its borders. Sure. Mm. I think the thing that makes it threatening is the idea that they're desperate, right? So they're not going to give up. And, you know, now that they know that the secret to curing themselves is move, you know, then that gives Earth a third possible outcome aside from turn us into a big farm for blood or kill all of us there's now we come to live on your planet and they can just you know all be mr johnson style um space vampires getting the blood as need be right while living here and slowly getting better um so i really like the ominous ending but you do hit on something that is probably my biggest issue Mm -hmm. with the movie Mm -hmm. um which is that the ending not the cemetery bit, but like the climax kind of sucks because this movie spends all this time building up that his weakness is too loud noises and they use it as like a happenstance thing so that Nadine can get away. But then the cops like explicitly turn off their sirens so Johnson won't know they're coming. And when they've done all this work to set up all these things you're thinking to yourself like, oh, and then Nadine will meet up with Harry and she'll tell him, no, turn on your siren. The loud noises will hurt him. And then that's how like both Nadine and Harry are like important and instrumental to the defeat of Johnson. But instead, Johnson just sort of defeats himself through like not knowing how to drive. Yeah. Which- <laughs> I mean, like Harry does turn on his siren right as the car crash happens. But it's not what takes Johnson out, right? Yeah. And like... What takes him out is the fact that he's not looking on the damn road when he's driving because he's trying to get Harry to look in his eyes in like the most inefficient way possible. And I mean, the movie does consistently set up through the entire movie that Johnson is not a good driver, but like that's still not a satisfying like it's like if like. Godzilla was defeated because like he slipped on some seaweed and like broke his neck (laughs) and it was just like, well, you know, I don't know. Accidents happen. Like it's just not like that's not a ocean safety. Yeah. Like that's not a satisfying ending. Um, I don't like the character of Harry. He strikes me as sort of unnecessary. Absolutely. He, He comes in handy during the climax because if he wasn't causing johnson to be distracted johnson wouldn't have gotten into that fatal car wreck but like other than that he's just like there so that there can be like a traditional Mm -hmm. hero figure which is kind of unnecessary yeah it's interesting because this is something that um griffith has you know he's pushing his own writing boundaries Mm. but yet you still see him kind of trapped in the traditional tropes yeah 
the only things that I can think that Harry serves is to confirm that Jerry is an ex-con. Right. And to give us the scene of this other beat cop being completely confused by the these string of missing persons cases and this strange vampire thing because people are coming up dead with their brain completely burned up and then puncture wounds in their necks and he's like i can see the newspapers now vampire strikes this town yeah it's like it's it's like that scene is there to establish that a the police aren't so incompetent that they haven't noticed all of these murders but b the police are incompetent enough that they haven't solved any of these after murders. 13 murders yeah which is a lot that's a lot like at that point, like, especially in the 50s, like, people started freaking out if, like, there was more than, like, one or two murders committed by the same person. If it wasn't, like, a, you know, gangster, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, by 13, like, God, like, I'm sorry, the commissioner is turning in his badge, <laughs> you know, like, the mayor is not going to win re-election next year. It's it's a It's a bad scene. The thing is, is that Corman really likes putting Beverly Garland in the hero role, but you end up with these like boyfriend characters who feel like, um, vestigial. Yeah. They're the appendices of horror movies at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're, we're slowly trending towards final girl. Yeah. Right. But we are still kind of stuck with. The girl can't actually defeat monster. Well, we're stuck. Sometimes she even does, but like we're stuck with these hero boyfriends who are becoming less and less necessary. Yeah. I think Beverly Garland is pretty good, especially yes. um, her moments at the end, both at the cemetery, um, her kind of deadpan, like she's gone through a lot mm. face as well as uh, when she wakes up in the beam mm-hmm. um, and just like is completely horrified with like being almost as if she feels violated from having the telepathic control. Oh yeah. And like the scene after that in the cemetery kind of reinforces that yeah. because you have Harry being like, I don't know. I kind of feel sorry for the guy. Like he had a horrible blood disease and he came millions of light years to earth, a planet where he knew nobody uh, you know, on a desperate mission to save his people and he died far, far from home and anyone he ever knew. Like, it's, he's kind of tragic. And Nadine's like, no, I don't feel pity for him at all. He can fucking rot in hell for all I care. And like that, <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. So, <laughs> What did you think about Jeremy as a character? Because I kind of liked Jeremy, uh, played by Jonathan Hayes. Um, he was like fine, but um, as far as like acting goes... But his character gave, it felt like some like life or energy to the picture. I really liked Jeremy as well. I think Jonathan Hayes did a good job. There's a couple of like weird quirks to the performance that are a little like weird, huh? Like Jeremy has a really weird laugh. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But um, what I liked about Jeremy is that like the idea of like this ex-con who isn't trying anything like he hasn't taken this job with this like seemingly super rich guy um as part of like a scheme to like steal from him or anything he seems to like legit just be like oh shit i lucked into a good thing 
Yeah. Right. Which I think is really nice because it, it gets away from this kind of idea that movies and stories just kind of fall into by accident sometimes, which is assuming that like criminals are just like inherently criminals Yeah, that like you can be a criminal the same way I can be five foot five where it's like, Oh, he'll just automatically be planning his next thing. It's like, no, like you're a criminal, you know, because you're desperate for money and you don't have like a good way of like getting it. And so when somebody shows up and they're like, Hey, all you need to do is drive me around and make me meals. I don't eat. And like occasionally do other like random errands for me. And I'll give you $300 a week and it's not even like weird things like dispose of this body no he's doing all the creepy stuff all he needs jeremy to do is like drop me off at the library pick me up at five and so like (laughs) this fucking nerd (laughs) so like yeah i think it makes total sense that jeremy's just like totally down to just do what he's told and take the money and the fact that he's an ex-con and that he's kind of a weirdo and that he's kind of creeping on nadine make him more interesting than harry Who's just like straight laced capital H hero. Right. Like if you took Harry out of the script and you instead really enhanced the part of the story where like Nadine and Jeremy realized that like, oh, we're going to come together and work together to figure out what's going on with this guy. Like if you had made it so that like Jeremy makes it through to the end and like ends up like with Nadine, like despite all odds and like the different sides of the track they came from at the start or whatever. And that shows like the fact that they've both really been like irrevocably changed by this shared experience that they've had, etc. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I think, I think Jeremy was interesting and had a lot of potential. I think Paul Birch gives a pretty good performance, Yes, but you know, he's doing this like cold and unemotional thing for mm-hmm. the role. Um, and he even has like a thing about, Uh, to the alien woman, like you're being too emotional because I guess if you need to be further advanced, you need to be unemotional. Yeah. Which is like a recurring kind of idea that we've seen in these sci-fi movies. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that like the hyper advanced scientist civilization or whatever, I do like her rebuttal to him where after he says like, you're being too emotional, she says something along the lines of like, this is a time for emotions because like their whole civilization is crumbling. I don't know if Birch as cold and unemotional works as well as they might've hoped for this role. Hmm. Um, because, and also I don't know if it's just because we happen to see it so frequently now because it is kind of like the standard alien thing, but it just felt like I wanted a bit more energy in this movie, Hmm. I guess. I disagree i thought his like monotone weird way of speaking and acting was really effectively creepy it was a really effective way to communicate that like there's just something off about this guy because he he talks in a kind of weird stilted manner um because that like weird alien way of talking where it's like soon plan seven shall be completed and when the next galactic rotation occurs i shall be my transpositor to you um he he talks like that when he's talking about like normal things yeah i i did like that it's kind of a situation where when someone doesn't understand where the emphasis should be in a sentence yes like just he talks in a weird way 
And I thought it really worked. And I think the best example of how well Birch is doing it and doing it in a way that's like creepy and effective is when he telepathically controls Nadine in order to like communicate to the audience that she's been hypnotized. Uh, she repeats back his instructions to him and her monotone is just in like, like a completely flat blank affectless way of speaking that was very, it didn't come across as, you know, I am without thought. It came across as bad acting. Like Mm. it felt like a bad actor reading lines. Whereas like, that's not what Birch feels like. So I actually really liked Birch's performance. And I thought that the movie had plenty of energy, even if Birch is doing the like walking slowly thing where it's like, stop running. I'm, I'm right behind you. I'm, I'm going to just keep coming. Stop, please stop running. You're just, please. I don't want to have to run myself. (laughs) Um, you know, he's doing that sort of thing, but like, I think that by getting, having him in the car and like, the way that other action scenes in the movie are kind of handled with like the guy who runs away from him up the fire escape at that one point and stuff. I think they managed to like do enough interesting things with the chases. They don't feel monotonous to me. Sure. Like they, you know, she runs down the street from him, but then she cuts into a park and he just drives the car into the park. They use like the backyard of the house for like different blocking You know, Corman hasn't really figured out how to have good cinematography. Like, I wouldn't consider any of, like, the shots in his movies so far to be particularly, like, gorgeous or anything like that. But you can see him becoming a better director with every movie that we watch from him, which is really interesting. And so you can see here, like, he's not shooting this in that, like, kind of flat, medium shot, locked off camera, pan style that these B movies like normally have. And that, you know, and he's editing in different ways. He's figured out how to edit for suspense. Yeah. And like, it's not like the camera is moving, uh, but it's being, you called it like a locked off camera. So I guess it's an unlocked camera. Yeah. It's being put into different positions around the set. Yeah, exactly. I personally didn't feel any lack of energy Mm. from this movie. Like to me, it felt like it was paced and moving along just fine with like, Hey, here's a skull in the incinerator. And that there was like always something happening. Um, it never felt like it was like spinning its wheels, but that's just like my personal reaction. Yeah, no, that's fair. I think like it needed to, if it really wanted to hammer home some of the more gruesome stuff, it should have lingered on them a little bit more. Um, the only time that it really feels like it lingers is when the blood comes from underneath the umbrella monster. Um, but when, for example, Jeremy pulls the skull out of the incinerator, we see it and then you blink and you miss it because we've cut. Yeah. I get what your point is that like, it's, it's fast enough that like, it's not, they aren't like doing a close up of it on his, in his hands or something like that. So I, I take your point. I wonder how much of that is to do with, you know, like with attack of the crab monsters, we had like the decapitation and like the hand getting chopped off. And so we can see like Corman is 
it seems like he's really pushing the boundaries for violence in these kinds of movies. Like, you know, when was the last time we straight up had a skull in a horror movie? Like, it feels like that should be a normal thing, but I can't remember the last time we had one where it wasn't like just a prop on a uh, shelf or, or not even that. Like, like I think the last time I remember really seeing one was like, you know, it was like a medical skeleton hanging in some like scientist's office or something like that's a fair point. I think, yeah, I think it's part of like, cutting away quickly so that you aren't like pushing it too far. You're kind of seeing what you can get away with. Yeah. But I, I agree that um, like it's, it's when you have a movie like this where it feels like it's sort of on the cusp of changing standards. One of the reasons I really like doing this show the mm-hmm. way that we do it in chronological order is it helps like, you know, things like the blood and the skull and the smoke coming out of the incinerator and all of that. Um, it helps it feel impactful. Yeah. But on the other hand, I can totally see where you're coming from, where it's like you're just on the cusp of something and you kind of just want to get the thing now. I want it now. Yeah. You sound like what's your face from the bad seed. Right. Yes. <laughs> Well, you know, so it's like the gore in this movie's like, you know, it's like, uh, as Donald Glover says, it's a hand job. Like, <laughs> you know what I really want? Yeah. Well, um, let's move on to ranking and see how this compares, because I think we are both in agreement that this is a horror movie. Yes, I think it it trends more towards sci-fi than horror, but it is sci-fi horror. Yeah, it's using. Um, wait a minute. That can't exist, Ben. Oh, Yeah. That stupid Twitter take. Yeah, sorry. Um, (laughs) I feel like this movie, yes, it's trending towards sci-fi, especially with the more cerebral take on things, but they're still doing horror. There's still like skulls and blood and 13 people dying. Because it's still Dracula. Yeah, it's still, well, not necessarily Dracula. No, I mean like Nadine is Mina and Jeremy is Renfield (laughs) and he's in like a big creepy house i don't think you could maybe you could map but you have to squint your eyes this time okay i think it still follows a lot of the blueprints of dracula especially given that one of mr johnson's main powers is hypnotizing people into being willing victims (laughs) it's just that like Oh, God, that means Harry is um, David Manners. Yeah, he's Jonathan Harker. Exactly. No, exactly. And Dr. Rochelle is Van Helsing. What's just kind of fun and interesting is that Charles B. Griffith takes that, like, Dracula skeleton and uses it as, like, a device to hang all of these neat sci-fi ideas that, like, he can't really do in a roger corman movie right because there's like a weird intergalactic space opera story (laughs) going on in like the background narrative of this movie which it feels like that's really what he wants to talk about right exactly but it's like there's no way that we're ever going to do like it's not even just that we're never going to do that in a roger corman movie it's that like no one is doing that on any budget level in the 1950s. What about Flash Gordon? Flash Gordon? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was 20 years ago. Uh, <laughs> and those were on like a movie serial budget. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah. But I, I, what I mean is I like that scale point. of intergalactic things. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about ranking. Okay. All right, Sarah. So where were you looking for this one? Well, I have a feeling you enjoyed this movie a bit more than I did. Yeah, I'm getting that impression. And it's not like it's bad, but I guess after the energy of Attack of the Crab Monsters, while the science is bonkers, um, especially compared to Not of This Earth, like, Not of This Earth is bonkers as well, but it's, like, less, like, excuse me, Mercury in a crab shell? (laughs) Not of This Earth is Star Trek science, where it's like, this sounds enough like real science that I'll let you get away with it. Yeah, that's, that's a great way of putting it. But I started looking at 65, mm-hmm. where Attack of the Crab Monsters is, okay. and I started looking down because of the energy and sure. the horror, yeah. like full-on decapitations and hand-capitations and... Dismemberment. Dismemberment. Thank you. I have an English degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started looking down. You have an English degree, not a mortician's certificate. <laughs> that be cool <laughs> there's the next csi um i, I kind of had 65 as a ceiling and then i started going down and i stopped at 92 the she creature because i was like okay i definitely know that the she creature is worse sure. i absolutely know that yeah right above that though is murders in the room Morgue, and uh, then above yeah. that is phantom of the room Morgue. Mm-hmm. um which you know phantom of the room Morgue is pretty grisly mm-hmm. um and I was like, okay, but this is a huge range. How do I narrow this uh, so that we don't get, like, completely bonkers in this section? And I found the middle point-ish between these two extremes, and that was right around 80 with Strangler of the Swamp. And I was like, that's really interesting to think about with Not of This Earth, because Strangler of the Swamp feels like it has deaths and um grisliness on screen but it feels way toned down compared to its original Fairman Maria yes um and similarly the energy feels a bit too low it feels a bit too subdued mm-hmm. um so I was like okay well I feel like around 80 that could be my floor because I knew she creature was like way too low so I guess my range then is 65 to 80 so um I agree with you that the energy level of Not of This Earth is lower, but I do want to remind you that it's a double feature. And I think the difference in energy level is like, for one thing, it's why Attack the Crab Monsters goes first. But I think it's like on purpose. Yeah, right? I would you, agree. You you can't like sustain the same thing for too long. And so I feel like it's like Attack the Crab Monsters grabs you and gets you in and gets you sitting up in your seat and paying attention so that then you actually watch Not of This Earth and pay attention to it instead of like falling asleep or like making out with your girlfriend or like whatever, throwing (laughs) popcorn at the screen, whatever teens did in the 50s. Um, So I think that's on purpose and I don't think it's a flaw. So the energy level being lower wasn't as big of a problem for me as it was for you and i liked the horror in this one better because mr johnson being like a humanoid figure 
made him scarier to me because even though he's like an alien from like another planet or whatever, he's still like a weird, mysterious employer who like has taken you in for like a lot of money and you know that it's probably a bad idea, but this is a lot of money. And then it turns out that he's like a super weird creep who's like killing people in his basement. And so like, (laughs) there's something like a bit more real about him and the like terror that Nadine has. And like, I liked her kind of like final girl energy Whereas like Marty in Attack of the Crab Monsters, she was like not really anything. And Attack of the Crab Monsters, like, listen, we liked that movie, but like it's still a movie about giant telepathic crabs who are liquid energy beings and, <laughs> you know, like our big giant crab paper mache plot oh, props. Oh, but I love them. Um, so here's the problem. I also started looking at number 65, Attack of the Crab Monsters, just like you. But I went up. Cool. So here's the thing. I I went up from there. I was looking for a floor. Like, okay, what's a movie I definitely know this is better than? And my floor was number 59, The Bad Seed. Because of movies where the evidence is disposed of in an incinerator... I preferred this one. Uh, <laughs> Fair. So um, then I started looking up from there to find a ceiling. And I sort of hesitated around number 46, Dementia. But I had to remind myself, like, above that is Man Without a Face and Dead of Night and The Maze, which are, like, pretty flawed movies in a way. Um, Right above the maze is the werewolf, which is sort of another like cheap B horror movie of this period. And um, I think I liked this better than the werewolf, which was fun and interesting, but also kind of like, and now we're going out into the woods to chase him again. Um, Right above that was the queen of spades, which is a real movie. And above the queen of spades are more real movies. And I was like, okay, I don't think I can put not of this earth higher. So my ceiling ended up being 42. So my range was 42 to 59. So basically we have a very sort of central sticking point here. There is like a key thing that we need to decide as a podcast before moving on. And that is, (laughs) Is not of this earth better or worse than Attack of the Crab Monsters? I think we have to go by the critical response mm. a bit here as well. Um, because I, I absolutely agree with you that it would be intentional for Not of This Earth to be more subdued than Crab Monsters. Um, and the science at least is like if you squint it works rather than just like just throw your eyes out. Like yes. <laughs> I guess your ears out. Don't even don't even worry about the science and crab monsters. Um, so I think, yeah, we can go above Attack of the Crab Monsters. OK, so then between Attack of the Crab Monsters, it's 65 and my floor, which was 59. Um, does anything pop out at you here as a sticking point? I'm going to put something forward to you. OK. At 60 is Cult of the Cobra, mm. which told kind of a complete story Mm -hmm. and brought in some really interesting 
albeit unintentionally, um, stuff about masculinity mm-hmm. in the 50s. And while, like, the transformation sequences of the chick to the snake, you kind of have to squint <laughs> to kind of believe it and stuff. Um, what do you think of that compared to Not of This Earth? Where, like, it really kind of feels like Griffith is really interested in what's going on in Devana. And it really feels that way because of the extended conversation between Mr. Johnson and the alien woman. Yeah. And like his conversations, like with his handler yeah. and stuff where we're getting like these political updates. Yeah. See, here's the thing. I think I enjoy not of this earth more. I think if you were to say like, Hey Ben, I, I want to like hang out with you and watch a movie, but I only own two movies cult of the cobra (laughs) and not of this earth i probably would choose to watch not of this earth again sure but i do agree with you that cult of the cobra is more interesting but then cult of the cobra is like accidentally interesting so how much weight do you give to how interesting it is so i'm very torn i'm totally willing to put this above Jujin Yuki Otoko, which I mean, that's below my floor. So, of course, I'm willing to put it above that. (laughs) Um, But I agree with you that, like, Cult of the Cobra is sort of an interesting one to compare with. I I think I prefer Beverly Garland as Nadine as a main character to any of the men in Cult of the Cobra. But, like, the men in Cult of the Cobra being shitty is kind of the point. So I don't, I don't know. I need, I need more data, maybe. (laughs) Okay, well. Why is the bad seed better? Well, here's the thing. I was looking at the bad seed, the black room, the 1926 student of Prague, the man they could not hang, the devil commands, freaks, son of Dracula. That's (laughs) the Countin. And I, I guess, like, against, like, the devil commands, not of this earth is probably better. Freaks is always a little tough. I think I would prefer freaks over not of this earth, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, and I would definitely prefer son of Dracula to not of this earth. So how do you, how do you feel about this compared to like putting this in at number 55? Like it would be going in above like the black room and stuff like that. I think if we're going to have like a compromise spot, I don't know if I want to put this above the black room because like the black room doesn't meander. It doesn't stray from its focus. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we've identified about not of this earth is that like, it's sort of got the like, Oh, but the real story is happening in the background thing going on. And Personally, I really like that sometimes. I think that's really cool sometimes. Like, but I do admire the way that like there are no extraneous parts. Yeah, in the black room. Um, so that's tough. Like, it's weird how you know I can easily be like, oh yeah, this belongs up at number forty-two. Um, but then like 
you'd look at another point in the list and you're like, but it shouldn't go above 58. Like the list has some like weird spots in certain places. If you start comparing like movies of very different feeling. Absolutely. It's tough. This is a tough thing. Um, Yeah. and, And we've talked about this before, but like these Corman movies are also tough to rank because it's like, how much do you give to the fact that they like have a lot of energy and like a lot of imagination and like a lot of like pizzazz and how much do you take away for like, right. But they were shot in like two days for $12. Like, you know what I mean? Um, so we've talked about the difficulty of that before. Like the bad seed is an a picture, but we didn't really like it that much. Yeah. I would put this above the bad seed below the black room then. Okay, is that sort of where we're feeling? Yeah. All right, I think I am okay with that. So entering the list at the new number 59 is Not of This Earth from 1957, directed by Roger Corman. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line on Tumblr through our Ask box. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can find the show on whatever podcasting app you like if you subscribe to our RSS feed. If you enjoy the show and would like to help us out, you can do so by leaving a rating or review on the podcasting app of your choice. Uh, Such things help the algorithmic lords who we all must serve here on the internet uh, to promote the show to others. If you want to, like Prometheus steal that promotion from the algorithmic gods and deliver it to the people yourselves, you can do so by talking up the show through word of mouth. Word of mouth is honestly the best way for us to grow our audience. If you have the means, you can head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Just like, we like mentioned. Uh, James the fifth. That's right. At the top of the show, <laughs> uh, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. And that helps support the show, helps pay our hosting fees, helps um, go towards the like time that we put into producing each and every episode at higher levels, five and $10. You get lots of cool bonus content um, on the reg. So that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, it seems like we might be revisiting some territory that we have like not been in for a very long time. Huh. Uh, because next week's movie is called The Pharaoh's Curse. Oh, mummy stuff. Mummy stuff. Cool. But is this from Universal? No, this is from United Artists. This is an oh, indie God. flick. No. <laughs> Great. So we'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.